there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to Nippon Trading International's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis of realestate.jp. He's a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families who are looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for over two decades now. And for about half of that time, he's been buying, selling and managing real estate properties in Tokyo on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So he's got dedicated loan officers in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts Panel Sessions, which means that you're already aware of the fact that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area, and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on sales at realestate.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so welcome back to the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Apologies for bailing on you and not publishing any episodes in the last few weeks. I've been away visiting family in Australia, and while I thought I'd be able to upload some episodes while there, it turns out that large audio video files don't actually upload very well when you're on a mobile connection, which is all we had there. But we're now back with a vengeance, as the saying goes, and today's episode is actually an audio rip of a video interview that was commissioned recently by Cheap Houses Japan which if you're a bit of a Japanese homes enthusiast, uh, like many of our listeners are, particularly single family homes, affordable ones, mostly in the countryside, you should definitely familiarize yourself with that website and the Cheap Houses Japan newsletter as well, which is a fantastic source of information and sample listings for anyone in the market for well, for cheap houses in Japan. Now, Michael, who runs the website and newsletter, has been referring many clients to us, for which we're, of course, very grateful. But over the course of the last year, as we've been working with these buyers, it quickly became evident that there's a lot of confusion out there among them. Um, and that's due to just plain misinformation. You've probably all seen those clickbait headlines reading something like, you too can buy a vacant home in Japan for only a few hundred dollars, which is a statement that even if it can be in some very extreme cases true in essence it is very very misleading as we've unpacked here on the podcast on many occasions but also a lot of confusion that's simply a result of misaligned expectations so people are used to things working in a certain way in their respective local property markets or elsewhere in the world wherever they might have purchased previously um, they're used to different levels of responsiveness, speeds of transactions, sellers, liabilities after the sale, and a lot of other little tidbits that can be very frustrating to deal with unless you're well-informed in advance and are ready for how things work here. So to cut a long story short, um, Cheap Houses Japan have commissioned the interview that you're about to listen to, which is essentially meant to prepare would-be holiday home buyers for the often long and 
painful process of purchasing here um, so that their dream home in the Japanese countryside or even within a major city in Japan can actually come true. Now, if you're tuning in here via the podcast, you won't see the introductory slides that um, detail the questions or the topics that are going to be discussed. And you can, of course, hop over to our YouTube channel and check out the video version of this interview. But even if you're just listening in here via the podcast, the informative sections following the slide intros are pretty self-explanatory. You'll figure out what I'm explaining even without these actual questions being spelled out for you. And this should be very educational for those of you who are interested in this sector, but are still unfamiliar with how things work here in Japan exactly. And with these abandoned, vacant Akia homes in particular, there is a lot that you need to know. So I hope you find value in this segment and let me know what you think. We're Nippon Tradings International, or NTI for short. And what we do is we represent foreigners, meaning people who are either not resident in Japan or in Japan, but don't speak, read and write the language or just need a hand. We represent them in everything to do with real estate purchases, sales, and management in Japan. So we can help them buy, uh, put property managers, tenants in place, renovations, repairs, improve on the property, do development projects, sell it down the track, anything they want, whether they're physically here or not. So we can do everything remotely on their behalf. So in most cases, it's pretty similar to what you'd expect from uh, property purchases overseas. You have a real estate agent uh, listing the asset. You have a property lawyer who's handling the ownership transfer document, checking the validity of the title deed and so forth. You've got property managers and building management companies in place in case of tenanted properties or properties that are in condo units and have an owner union. And you have an insurance company, renovation, repair, tax department, the same sort of components that you have overseas. The only added complexity is in case you're buying uh, one of the infamous Akia, which are abandoned properties in the Japanese countryside, abandoned or vacant, and there's also a government municipality involved, a local municipality involved, who is in charge of facilitating the purchases of these abandoned properties, and that just adds another stakeholder, if you will, to the process and also complexity and length of time. So depending on the price of the properties, the cost would vary. For the cheapest properties on the markets, the one that you see advertised for anywhere between a few thousand to fifty thousand dollars, say, if you're using a facilitator like us, which is required in these areas normally, it would cost a worst case of 20 or up to maybe 22, 23 percent. And the pricier the property uh, is, the lower that percentage drops. Properties that are 100, 200,000 would normally cost the worst case of maybe 13, 14% in purchase costs. In essence, it's very similar to what you'd expect in other countries. There is a property listing, you submit an offer, negotiate the price, do viewings, inspections, structural inspections if you want to. And then once everyone is satisfied in moving forward, you sign the contract, pay a 10% deposit. It takes about a month to execute the ownership transfer documents, especially if they're coming in from overseas, like in the foreign buyer's case. And then at the end of that period, the property lawyer conducts the ownership transfer and the property is transferred over to the buyer's name. It does get more complex when you're dealing with, again, abandoned countryside type of sellers where the owner is either elderly and moved out or passed away and the property is being sold by their descendants. In those cases, again, there's going to be a government municipality involved 
who need to first approve you as a buyer before they'll even pass you on to the real estate agent for viewings and negotiations. No one involved in the process, in the case of most of these remote properties, has ever worked with a foreigner before, so they first need to wrap their head around how everything would work dealing with a foreign buyer on the other end, which is where middlemen or facilitators like us can help a lot. And also because, again, you're dealing with an elderly seller or their descendant, somebody who probably has not purchased or sold many properties in their lifetime, everything takes longer. Every response takes weeks to receive. Every document takes weeks to source or reproduce because they've never kept them. Zoning regulations and boundaries need to be reconfirmed, especially in cases where the property was built decades and decades ago where these things were not even norm. It's a lengthy process. The cheaper and more rural the properties are, the more complex the process becomes. It's always possible, it's always doable, but it takes a lot of time and patience and uh, there are a lot of moving pieces involved. Now, if you've been following this podcast for a while, and in particular our JREP sessions, you're probably more than familiar with Blanca Kobayashi of Arc Reform. They're a bilingual renovation company serving clients in the Kanagawa and Kanto area. So Tokyo, Chiba, Saitama, Kawasaki, Yokohama. They can handle simple, small-scale projects as well as full house renovations. And they will work with you on the perfect design for your dream family home. But not only homes, Arc Reform also handle commercial property renovations, offices, restaurants, bars, shops, you name it, from traditional classics to the latest trends in interior design and renovations. So you want to email them for a free consultation and quote at info at arcreform.com. That's A-R-K reform, all one word, dot com, and give your home or commercial space the love and care that it deserves. So viewings would normally work um, as you would expect if you are in Japan, speak the language and can just schedule a viewing with a listing realtor and meet them at the property, take photos, videos, whatever you want. If you're not in Japan or do not speak the language, and again, in the case of most rural properties, the listing realtors will also not be able to deal directly with foreigners. In those cases, if somebody like us is involved and the realtor is um, tech savvy enough and open-minded enough, they can conduct a remote viewing for us and we would be uh, linking with you and with the Realtor via Zoom to provide interpretation. In case the Realtor is extremely old school, which is often the case, then we can go to the property, conduct a remote viewing on your behalf uh, along the same lines. So structural inspections are definitely possible. You probably want to have them done if the property is getting too old in years or if it's at a certain price point where it makes sense to evaluate how much you would need to further put into it. They normally cost between $500 to $1,500 depending on how large the property is and how accessible the various parts of it are, like the roof or the base. We would normally commission the inspection once an offer has been accepted. There's, there's obviously no point in forking out that money if that's not going to be moving forward at all. So legally, there's nothing uh, preventing you from doing that. However, Japan being Japan, everything here is very uh, checkbox manners and proper conduct oriented and submitting offers and then pulling them back without a valid concrete reason, which the realtor and the seller can easily understand is very much frowned upon. So in other countries, the practice is definitely submitting multiple offers if you can, and then just going with the one you like best or the one that was accepted the quickest. Here it's generally expected that if you have submitted an offer and the offer has been accepted, you'll only be pulling back 
due to due diligence related reasons. So for example, if you found out in the official documentation, you found out that something is not exactly as you expected it um, with registration or zoning or boundaries. If you conduct a structural inspection and you find some significant damage that you don't think would be surmountable, like termite damage or tilting or sinking, those are all very valid reasons to pull an offer back and not go ahead with the deal. But if you're just going to pull the offer back because you've had a change of heart, you went for another property, you decided not to invest on the, at this time, you got cold feet, whatever the case may be, that particular realtor and government municipality in case of an Akia abandoned property will not be working with us as your representative or with you again. And that also reflects on their image. Again, this is probably the first time they've actually come in contact with a potential foreign buyer. And then that colors the entire experience for them and cements the image that foreigners have here of being tire kickers because in Japan it's just not done. So we would always ask our clients to shortlist and we can of course help with the research and shortlisting of a list of properties that they're interested in, in order of priority, pursue them one at a time. And if we pull back the offer, explain exactly why so that the relationship remains intact. So this is definitely the case if you're purchasing from a real estate company, companies that purchase properties and then later sell them at a profit, either as a renovate and flip or just flip at a slightly higher price, then they will provide uh, up to two years of warranty for any unseen faults. If you're buying from an individual, it's not the default mode. If you're buying a very cheap property, it's usually a case of take it as it is and it's expected that there's going to be stuff that you need to repair and renovate. If the property is slightly more expensive, then we can definitely try to insert a warranty or responsibility clause into the contract. But then it's, even if the seller does agree, it's not going to be for a year or two. It's going to be for three, maybe six months at most. It obviously varies depending on location and size of the land uh, as well as the age and condition of the property. So closer to larger metropolitan centers will be more expensive regardless of condition. A larger land plot will be more expensive, again, regardless of condition. But otherwise, generally speaking, we normally see properties that are 8 to 10 million yen and over. So let's call it 70 to 90,000 US dollars and over. Um, of having a higher probability of not needing major renovations. Anything under that in the few tens of thousands and definitely in the few thousands of dollars per property are going to take some very major work in the vast majority of cases. We have been pleasantly surprised at times, but that's definitely the exception of the norm. That very much depends on the local community and what exposure they've had or haven't had to foreigners in the past. In Japan specifically, generally speaking, the Japanese tend to be quite insular. They're not used to the, the foreign foreigner population in Japan is a lot lower than it would be in many other countries, even around Asia. Most people are not used to dealing with foreigners unless they come from a relatively big or internationally friendly city. When you're looking at these countryside properties, it really depends. So the sellers are normally happy to just take their money and finish the transaction, especially if they're going to be moving away to another community and following the sale. 
if the seller remains in the community or if the community members as a rule have never experienced or dealt with a foreigner in the past, it can vary a lot. They would be definitely surprised to see you there. Whether that will translate into uh, curiosity and communication or aloofness and uh, hostile looks around their shoulder really depends on the community. Some of them are very close-knit. So even the government authority or the real estate agent who is communicating with you prior to the sale in those cases would advise you to maybe reconsider because the community is very insular. And that's not necessarily specifically related to foreigners. They can be equally hostile to people coming in just from another city in Japan. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home-away-from-home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, if that's still a thing, or if you just need somewhere quiet to get away from the world. They offer a variety of options for families, corporate relocations, or even if you're simply transitioning between homes in Tokyo. The properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They come with fast unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in. Fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but longer term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly in a Japanese business hotel. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home, with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, etc. You definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profit, or a holiday home that you want to rent out when you're not using it via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth a visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at sales at realestate.jp. And now back to the podcast. So there are two aspects to research and review there. The first is what are the local municipality regulations on short-term state properties. Um, some ward offices in Tokyo, for example, who are very open to tourism are more lenient. Some little tourist towns who want to increase economy via tourism are more lenient. But others are very strict. Um, neighbors and uh, local community members don't want to see, again, uh, too many strangers coming in and out of the town and then they would be more strict. They would necessitate, for example, a staff member being always on hand, either at the property or close to it, um, not to run it during the weekends, not to run it um, during public holidays, not to run it in close proximity to public facilities like a nursing home or a school or a kindergarten. So it very much varies. Once we've established what local ward office regulations are in one particular area, we can then look at individual properties, but then 
The other challenge becomes who's going to manage it for you. So short-term stay regulations in Japan require either a staffer on hand at the property or close to it, or alternatively a licensed management company within a certain distance from the property. In those rural areas where a lot of the cheaper properties are located, there are just simply no management companies available. So unless you're going to be living in the property and running the uh, short-term stay operation yourself, or alternatively hiring somebody to do it for you who can be at the property or close to it, it's going to be very difficult, near impossible. So the challenges there are usually related to mismatched expectations on both ends. So the Japanese side, again, as discussed previously, are used to things going by the book. They're not used to people coming in, waving loads of cash, submitting multiple offers, and then deciding which one to go for. They're not even used to being asked too many questions and for too many terms and conditions to put into the contract. Usually, property purchases in Japan are very straightforward. There's a listing, there's a price, you might slightly negotiate it, maybe 10, 15%, maybe conduct a structural inspection, which is rare for these older, cheaper properties, and the deal is done. But Foreigners who are coming into Japan are obviously used to a different mode of operation. In many cases, if they come into another country and they're a cash purchaser, they're going to be an army of real estate agents and available properties and everybody wants to work with them. Everything moves very smoothly and quickly. The moment they submit an offer, it's accepted. Two days later, they can get the documents. It just doesn't work that way here. And the more rural and cheaper the property is, the more slow everything is going to take, the less motivated sellers are. In many cases, it's just a property that's been in the family for ages and it's the government pushing the seller to sell it. It's not going to be as smooth and as quick and as open arms as you'd expect it to be, whether in your country of residence or other countries that you purchased in, in the past. So we normally tell our customers, number one, to buckle in, it's going to be a long haul. They might look at 5, 10, 15, 20 different properties before they actually find the one that they're going to go ahead with. And even then, every stage of the process, again, the more rural, the cheaper the property, the more likely everything will take much longer. Everything will be a lot more vague until we can clarify and put everything down in writing. Documents will be amended, re-amended, sent again. Documents will have to be reproduced. Everything will take much, much longer. So. Definitely not a good idea to send us a list of properties and say I'm coming in two months and I want everything to be settled by then. It's just not going to happen. You need to evaluate the properties one by one, see how long the projected process is going to take, and then start planning your first visit to the property. If you do it in advance, you're going to end up being frustrated and disappointed. And that's going to be the case if you expect things to move at the same pace or at the same smoothness that they do overseas. It just does not, everything is by the book, everything is legal, everything will eventually happen, but it will take time and it's going to be more complicated and there's gonna be much more fiddliness to it than you used to overseas. So again, buckle in, enjoy the ride. It's not going to be a fast process by any means. So there you have it. Huge thanks again to Cheap Houses Japan for commissioning this interview. And we're going to link to the website in this episode show notes. I'm personally quite happy with how the interview turned out. And I think for those among you who have been wanting to pull the trigger on that dream holiday home purchase, uh, it should provide a good background and preparation really on exactly what to expect and what to not expect along this journey. 
I hope you found some value in it. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. And he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.